Today's scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning, Exilic Church. Welcome to another online worship service. And as we bring this sermon series to a close, from Isaiah, the series called The King of Justice Who Redeems. In this scripture, the last two chapters, we see that God wants us to be left with a word of great encouragement and great joy. The question I have for you this morning is one I've been asking myself a lot lately. And that is, where do I find joy for the future? I don't know how your experience of COVID-19 has been. If you've been with family outside of New York or you've stayed in the city, Whatever it's been, I'm sure that, like me, you've had ups and downs with how you felt about the situation. It's leading up to this very message, I can tell you that I'm normally a person who is glass half full. But for a number of reasons, I found myself at times seeming like I was fighting for joy. Maybe it was the political situation at times. There would be articles about New York City. One day, it would look bright this company or that company renewed a major lease. Another day, there would be a new wave of bad news, um, increased crime, more unrest. Up and down, 
my own spirit would go. And this coupled with the reality that I wasn't spending as much time with colleagues or the students at our seminary. So I found my own joy to be a bit more on a roller coaster than normal for me. And I found in this text some very helpful things. To answer the question for myself, where do I find joy for the future? A joy that's more lasting, that has greater stability, that's more robust regardless of the situation. And in this passage, we see a number of things that God has for us. He's very explicit at how we can find this joy for the future. And the first thing is that God would have us to rejoice in his future works, to rejoice in his future works. So you see this in verses 17 and 18. Let's take a look at them together. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Note this movement here. First, God says in his word here that he creates a new heavens and a new earth that the former things won't be remembered or come to mind. God is saying there's going to come a time in history, in the future, where he's going to renew everything. And he narrates what this, going, what this is going to look like in the, in the following verses with incredible language. It's going to be a time where there'll be no weeping, verse 19. There'll be no lives cut short, verse 20. There'll be no fruitless labor. Verse 21, there'll be no fearing for children. Verse 23, even nature will be at peace with itself and with human beings. Verse 25, this is the new heaven and the new earth. When heaven and earth join together, God dwelling with his people in perfect harmony, his people dwelling with each other in perfect harmony, and God and people and even creation dwelling in perfect harmony. What a wonderful work God has promised to do. But it's not enough for us to know this. And this is what I found so insightful myself in studying this passage. In verse 18, this little word, but, is a strong adversative. And what's meant there, it says, but be glad and rejoice forever. That is to say, don't just know that this is happening. Set your mind on it and take delight that I, your God, am going to bring this about. Rejoice forever. That is, never lose sight of this reality, that I have a plan, I have a purpose for your future and for this world in which you live in. No matter how much injustice or brokenness or uncertainty is around you, whether it be personal or corporate in the culture, or maybe sometimes with family or friends, God says, I have a plan. Take note of it. Rejoice in it. Never let it leave your mind. You know, if you've grown up around the Christian faith, you've heard things like rejoice in God quite a bit, rejoice in Jesus quite a bit, and, and that's true. But what's striking about this is that we're actually told to rejoice in that which God creates, not just in himself. And yes, in some sense, those two realities are inseparable, right? But what's distinctive for us in this call to rejoice in what he creates is it, one, it recognizes that we're material people, that the physical brokenness around us is always going to disturb us. We need to know 
for real and for certainly and for sure that this physical reality is going to be repaired. It's not enough for us just to have our hearts and our souls internally put at peace without this additional knowledge. And the way that he expounds upon this is also powerful. In the Hebrew text in verse 18, let's look again at that. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. In the Hebrew text, it would read literally, for behold, I create Jerusalem joy, people gladness. And that's powerful because while it's an accurate translation to say I create Jerusalem to be a joy, the text reads in a way um, more powerfully than that because the idea here is I create Jerusalem joy. They're synonymous with one another. Jerusalem represents here the place where God's people dwell. The place where God's people dwell will be a place synonymous with joy. I create people gladness. God's people will be full of gladness, such that when you think of the people of God, you think of gladness. That's a beautiful image. It's a powerful image. And the best thing is that it's completely true. You know, in my life and in my family's life, we've experienced a lot of affliction, especially through chronic illness. And on more than one occasion, the teaching like this teaching here had been our only hope. When things would get very desperate and the prognosis would look really dire, we took great comfort in knowing that God was one day going to take away this illness, restore our bodies, and restore our souls completely. When we think about this need that human beings have, we have to pause and ask ourselves, is it really possible to have this kind of hope apart from God? Is this sort of a, a pie in the sky? Um, is it possible to, to believe this way um, if God doesn't exist? There's a philosopher named Christian Smith who wrote a very helpful book called Atheist Overreach. And this is a quotation from that book. If you'll look on your screen, it's there for you. If we're intellectually honest, we will see that a belief in universal benevolence and human rights as moral fact and obligation does not fit well or naturally flow from the realities of a naturalistic universe. Someone who believes in a naturalistic cosmos is, it seems to me, perfectly entitled to believe in and act to promote universal benevolence and human rights, but only as an arbitrary, subjective, personal preference, not as a rational, compelling, universally binding fact and obligation. You know, the Christian faith, far from being irrational, actually comports and, and makes great sense of the longings of every human being. And what Smith is getting at there is, how do you explain our longings? How do you explain the things that hold us together most preciously as people, the emotional, familial, and friendship bonds that we treasure so much? How do you explain our longing to not only see ourselves flourish, but others flourish without a belief in God? He says it's very difficult. So as we think about where to find joy in the future, let's take God at his word. Rejoice in his future works. Our time in this imperfect situation 
is limited. And that's good news for us all. And what we see as this passage unfolds, in addition to telling us to rejoice in his future works, God tells us to remember that he is everywhere. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Why is God telling his people this? Well, there's two reasons why. One, some of God's people had become very superstitious about his dwelling in the temple. They had imagined that regardless of how they lived, they could go to that particular place, offer this particular sacrifice or that particular sacrifice, and they would be in the presence of God. God's warning them, saying, I don't just dwell in a particular place like that. I am everywhere. Don't be silly. So there's a warning in that sense. And there's a call not to ever think that we can conjure up the presence of God or that we need to by being in a particular place. So there's a warning. But there's also a great encouragement. Have you felt sometimes in this pandemic that things just aren't the way they should be? We're doing online worship services. We're doing online small groups. And as as much of a blessing as these things are in this season, admittedly, they can be challenging. And yes, they won't last forever. Thankfully, we have every reason to believe that this pandemic will come to a close even before the new heaven and new earth. And we all long for that day. But in this current situation, where we are forced to do things so differently, let's step back and embrace this truth. Let it shape us. Let it encourage us. Let us be reminded that God is present everywhere. Yes, it'll be good when we can gather again, but we're in this season now where we remember that He's present right where we are. He's present powerfully in our community groups. He's present powerfully as we gather together virtually in these online services. His presence is right with us. He's, he's, he's just right here. And this should encourage us in difficult times because sometimes we find ourselves discouraged because we have subconsciously associated the presence of God with a certain place or a certain activity. And God wants us to hear, I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere, always there for you. So rejoice in God's future work. Remember that God is everywhere. And also remember to meet God in his living word. So he says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, let's give our attention there as it comes up on the screen. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God says that rather than looking upon that person who simply shows up in the right place, or as the text unfolds, we'll see, does the right things, that God looks at, he sets his eyes upon, he's in relationship with the one, he comforts those, not based on where they are, not based on what they do, but those who, quote, tremble at his word, those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Now let's break this down for a little bit. Um, Humble and contrite in spirit. Humble to know 
that without this relationship with God, we're going to be empty and joyless. Contrite to know that if God isn't a king of justice who also redeems by giving his own son, the suffering servant we've seen over and over again in this series, if he's not a forgiving, loving, merciful God, then we would not be able to be in a relationship with him because of our own injustice, our own fallenness, our own sin. So we're humble. But this humility and this spirit of contrition over our lack of holiness isn't something that leads us to despair. Quite the opposite. It leads us to a place of joy. Because we know that knowing this about ourselves sets us up exactly how God wants us to be, to receive from Him. He says to tremble at His Word. We think of tremble, that can often be associated with a fearful response. But it can also simply speak to the power and the living nature of the Word of God. That when we hear this Word, it has an impact upon us. He is real. He's ministering to us through it. You know, the Bible is not just a series of propositions. It's not just a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. It is full of great propositions of truth. But it's first and foremost, and all that story and truth flows from this reality, that it is a living Word. It is a living Word of God Himself. It is a powerful and an active Word. It is a means by which God communes with us. And we need to remember to meet God in His living Word. And I would say this also. Remember especially that God is ready to meet you in His living Word, especially when there is a gap. When there is a gap between what you're experiencing in this world and the gap is just very profound between what the world will be in the future. Great times of loss, great times of disappointment, great times of sorrow. Sometimes these are the very times when we're tempted to kind of pull away from God. I think, is God against me in these seasons? And this scripture would say to do the opposite. Draw near to God, especially in those times, and get ready to meet Jesus Christ, who is called the Word of God Himself. Get ready to meet Jesus Christ in His Word, right in those gaps. There's a powerful story in Scripture that speaks to this reality. In John chapter 11, um, Jesus was traveling to Bethany. And before he got there, uh, Lazarus, one of his good friends and the brother of Mary and Martha, whom he'd spent time with in their home, Lazarus died. Jesus actually, it says in, in the Gospel of John, delayed two days before coming. That is to say, he anticipated he was going to do something about the death of Lazarus, but he actually let the grief seep in, you might say, before he came. And when he came, he was greeted by Martha. I'm just going to paraphrase the story. And um, she asked him to uh, do something about the death of Lazarus. And Jesus said that Lazarus would rise again. And she said, yeah, but that's going to be on the last day, the day that we've spoken about here, this new heaven and new earth. But rather than right at that moment, raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus did two things. First, he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? You know what he's saying to her in that moment? He's saying, let's back away from the circumstances here and let's seize the opportunity of this grief 
what I'm calling here this gap and recognize that it's really all about your relationship with me. I am the one in whom you will find life and whom you will find it to the full, as he says in John chapter 10. First think about me and then think about your circumstances. That's the first thing that Jesus does. The second thing that he does is he actually takes time to weep himself on that very occasion. Shortest verse in the Bible occurs right here. Jesus wept. And we see something very powerful here. You know, there is a degree to which suffering is a mystery. And we should concede that. It's a mystery that will be reconciled and resolved. God reveals many things about it to us that make it slightly less mysterious. But it is a mystery. But what's not a mystery is this. What's very clear is that rather than drawing back from our suffering, we worship a God who enters into it in the most powerful way. Jesus, the Son of God, the the Son, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Logos, assumed a human nature, became a man, a God-man, and made himself liable to all the miseries of this life. That's what Jesus did. And what we see here is him identifying with suffering. He even knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he does. But this should encourage us greatly again, how and why. It encourages us because it lets us know precisely when you feel maybe furthest from God because things are not going the way you want and you've associated with God with things you could do or with a certain place, know that Jesus wept with Mary and Martha and he weeps with you. He communes with you. He's ready to meet you precisely in that place of brokenness. Come to him in that moment. And know that He is the resurrection and the life. And that future joy that's appointed for us is a joy that we can find in Him today. So we rejoice in God's future works. We remember that God is everywhere. Remember to meet God in His living Word, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And we also to remember, we're also to remember that our relationship with God is always more important than our works for him. Look at verse 4. I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. What is God speaking about in this verse? Well, in the verses just prior to this one, he's gone on to Um, expound in powerful metaphors the false worship of his people. We said earlier in this message that uh, the people were going to the temple, assuming that God was in that place. They could meet him there. They could be guaranteed of that. And they would go and offer sacrifices there. What God is saying is they're offering these sacrifices without regard to his word. When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. They did what was evil in his sight. What's happening here? What's happening here is this. You see, they had forgotten that their intimate personal relationship with God was always more important than these outward acts of service. God wanted to know them. God wanted to have their hearts. He wanted to have their minds. He wanted to commune with them. And they had put the performative acts of religion in the foreground, and they had deceived themselves. Remember, your relationship 
with God is always more important than your work for Him. A lot of us can come into significant seasons of depression and despair because, you know, we're made to work. Some of us don't have the work that we would like to do right now. We're made to be with other people. We're made to serve others. And some of you have taken great delight in doing just those kinds of things. And now, because of the situation of the pandemic, we can't do those things the way we once could. And it can become very distressing, uh, significantly so. Again, we look forward to the time in the near future, I hope, when that will come to a close. But for now, while we remain in this situation, remember, your value is tied to your relationship with God. He loves you and wants to know you. Your value and significance comes from the reality that your Father in heaven has set His love upon you and His Son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from what you used to be able to do. And the last thing we see here to call our attention to in this text is to remember His justice prevails. So just to run through, we've got rejoice in God's future works, remember God is everywhere, remember to meet God in His living Word, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, Remember that your relationship with God is always more important than your works for Him. And then finally, remember that His justice will prevail. In verse 5 and 6, we read this. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who will be put to shame. What situation is God describing here? He's describing a situation where the people of God are rejoicing in God. They are trembling at His word. They're communing with Him. And yet those around them, are they affirming them for that? No, they're mocking them for that. They're deriding them for that. They're saying that their hope is no real hope at all. This we can expect as followers of Jesus Christ in this life. But the Lord says that ultimately it's those people who are going to be put to shame because it's those people who have been deceived, who have not seen God for who He is as the King of justice who redeems.